0: Catherine Hepburn beats the jungle with Bogey and Bacall, steals the show in her pants, tackles Shakespeare, and proves that middle-aged actresses rock. From 1951, it's the African Queen. Mm-hmm. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. In 1951, Catherine Hepburn found herself in Africa with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren McCall, and John Huston. And she almost lost her mind. Well, not really. That's just what Kate liked to say at times. Despite intense humidity, nomadic soldier ants, poisonous black mamba snakes in the bathroom contaminated water, and an inebriated director and co-star, Katharine Hepburn had a blast filming The African Queen. It was just the sort of adventure Kate was looking for, and the sort of film her career needed. At age 44, Hepburn was at a turning point in her career. Accept defeat in the youth-oriented culture of Hollywood, or prove that middle-aged actresses rock. Being Catherine Hepburn, she chose the latter. With The African Queen, Kate began the most artistically fulfilling and varied period of her career. She performed Shakespeare on Broadway and on tour with the Old Vic Theatre Company in Australia. She tackled George Bernard Shaw's difficult play, The Millionaris, on London's West End. And with her layered portrayals of mature women in her films... Katherine Hepburn demonstrated that a Hollywood actress's career is far from over at age 40, setting the precedent for the lengthy careers film actresses enjoy today. We'll go through Kate's admirable accomplishments as she stretched herself as an actress, and how Kate managed to keep her dignity while sharing an adjoining outhouse with the Bogarts in the jungle. But first, let's go through the plot of The African Queen. Rose Sayer, Catherine Hepburn, and her brother Samuel, Robert Morley, are English Methodist missionaries in German East Africa. Though it's August of 1914, Rose and Samuel remain oblivious to the fact that World War I has just begun and will soon affect their village. It's Canadian mechanic Charlie Allnutt Humphrey Bogart, who finally informs the Sayers about the war. Charlie brings Rose and Samuel their mail and imported goods on his small steam launch, the African Queen. On his latest drop, Charlie tells the Sayers that the Germans will probably make it impossible for him to come out their way for a while. Rose takes this as a sign that perhaps she and Samuel should leave the village, but Samuel is unmoved and believes they must remain with their congregation. Not long after Charlie leaves, German colonial troops raid the village, burning down huts and seizing villagers for military service. Samuel won't stand for such mistreatment and he fights back, only to be bludgeoned by a German soldier. The blow proves fatal and after hours of delirium, Samuel dies, leaving Rose to mourn alone among the wreckage of the village. Luckily, Charlie Olnick comes back to the village later that day, He spots Rose and tells her that they must leave immediately. It's obviously not safe to stay, and besides, the Germans will soon be after Charlie's boat and supplies. Rose agrees, and after burying Samuel, she and Charlie set out together down the Ulanga River on the African Queen. Rose and Charlie must now figure out where they'll be safest and how to get there. In the midst of their conversation, Rose learns from Charlie that the British can't attack German forces in the area because of a large German gunboat, the Louisa, downriver from their current location. Rose recognizes a chance to be of great help to the British war effort and proposes that she and Charlie use his blasting gelatin and other supplies on board to make torpedoes. Then, when the African Queen comes across the Louisa, Rose and Charlie will launch the torpedoes, destroying the gunboat and clearing the way for the British to enter the region. In Charlie's mind, it's a fool's plan. Apart from the whole homemade torpedoes and launching them bit, Rose and Charlie will have to navigate through perilous white rapids on the Ulanga, successfully pass a German fort without being shot to a watery grave, and make it through a muddy forest of reeds to even get close to the Louisa. To keep the peace... Charlie agrees to Rose's proposal but his true feelings soon become apparent. After indulging in a few too many drinks, Charlie tells Rose he's not doing any of that. The torpedo plan is off. Once he's sobered up, Rose reprimands Charlie. Her words about the follies of human nature are aimed not just at Charlie's drinking, but at her disappointment in him for going back on his promise to torpedo the Louisa, quote, Nature, Mr. Allnett, is what we're put in this world to rise above, Rose tells him. Her words strike a chord with Charlie, and he once again agrees to the torpedo plan, this time for good. Charlie also probably realizes by this point that with the fiery and determined Rose as his traveling companion, he really doesn't have any other choice. With each set of rapids that Rose and Charlie successfully navigate on the Ulanga, their confidence in the eventual victory of their torpedo plan grows. And so do their feelings for one another. By the time they pass the German fort, evading constant enemy fire before navigating yet another set of rapids, Rose and Charlie can no longer deny their feelings for each other. A kiss seals their love, and emboldens the duo to fix the African queen's propeller with an improvised weld of a broken blade. Their love also helps Rose and Charlie get through the difficult task of manually pulling the African queen through leech-infested waters. Finally, a heavy rain brings them to the mouth of the lake where the Louisa sits. With the Luisa in sight, Rose and Charlie build their torpedoes, and secure them in holes they've cut out in the sides of the African Queen. But on the night of their planned attack, it rains again. The torrential downpour causes the African Queen to capsize before any torpedoes are released. Rose gets lost in the storm while Charlie is captured by the Germans and brought on board the Louisa. Charlie is deemed a British spy and the German captain sentences him to death by hanging. Charlie, thinking Rose died at sea, is ambivalent to his sentence, that is, until Rose is found by the Germans and brought on board. After proudly divulging their torpedo attack plan, Rose, too, is sentenced to death. Charlie pleads with the captain to marry him and Rose before proceeding with the dual hanging. The captain reluctantly agrees and Mr. and Mrs. Allnett prepare to meet death with a degree of joy in their newlywed state. But then an unlikely thing happens. All this time, the Louisa has been drifting closer and closer to the African Queen, whose position was never found after the storm. Before the hanging commences, the gunboat and the steam launch collide, causing the torpedoes to go off. The Louisa is destroyed. Rose and Charlie see their chance to escape, and they jump ship. We did it, Charlie! We did it! Rose exclaims. And the Allnuts happily swim to freedom on the East Shore, where they'll begin their new life together. And that's the end of the film. After falling in love with Spencer Tracy on the set of Woman of the Year, Katherine Hepburn's priorities shifted. Tracy's well-being, not her career, now came first. For just about the next decade, Kate based her career decisions off of Tracy's schedule, opting for film roles that kept her close by his side or starred her opposite him. In fact, of the 11 films Kate made between 1942 and 1951, six of them paired her with Tracy. Kate's decision to put Spencer first was good for the Tracy-Hepburn relationship, and it was certainly beneficial for Tracy's health. At times, Kate's presence seemed the only thing keeping Tracy sober, and her nursing the only way to bring him back to sobriety after a binge. But basing all her choices around Spence wasn't so great for Kate's career. Excluding the Philadelphia story and Woman of the Year, 1949's Adam's Rib, Kate's seventh film with Tracy, was her only bona fide hit of the decade. The career disappointments, draining caregiver cycle, and a particularly rough patch in her relationship with Spencer led Katherine Hepburn to the realization that it was time for a change. Quote, well, if you don't improve, you slip inevitably backwards, or you hammer, hammer, hammer on the same spot, and you become the same old thing doing the same old thing. So get going. I had to get going. Unquote. Kate decided that the best way to get going was to stretch herself as an actress, to temporarily leave films for the stage, and tackle what many consider to be the true litmus test of an actor's ability, Shakespeare. And so, in 1950, Catherine Hepburn became the only star of her generation and magnitude with the guts to take on the prose of the Bard of Avon with the role of Rosalind in As You Like It. It was tough work, replete with long hours of study, and, once the play began touring, a lifestyle completely opposed to Kate's natural preferences. But she found the challenge extremely rewarding. Quote, I like to get up early and work in the morning and afternoon. I like to sleep at night. But to build my career, I would force myself to do a play. Night work. Unquote. When As You Like It premiered at Broadway's Court Theater, critical opinion was, as usual with Kate's Broadway forays, with the strong exception of the Philadelphia story, mixed on the merits of her performance. As Kate herself later put it, some of the critics viewed her Shakespearean efforts as, quote, sort of like, well, she has a nerve to be doing this, unquote. But Hepburn didn't mind. She was proud of herself for reaching out as an actress. Kate performed her Rosalind to nearly sold-out houses for 148 performances, before taking As You Like It back on the road for yet another successful tour. As You Like It proved a career-changing experience for Katherine Hepburn. The challenges of Shakespeare primed her to accept the role of Rosayer in The African Queen, a film that sealed Kate's reputation as one of Hollywood's finest actresses. But great personal tragedy would also push Kate towards the African Queen. After her final tour of As You Like It closed, Kate went home to Connecticut for some family time. On March 17, 1951, Kate and her father went out for a drive. When they returned home for tea time with her mother, Kate and Dr. Hepburn immediately sensed that something terrible had happened. And they were right. 73 year old Kit Hepburn was dead. It was one of the few times Kate would ever see her father emotionally distraught. The only comfort Kate and the rest of the Hepburn family could take in the situation was that it appeared any pain Kit experienced in her last moments was minimal. Losing her beloved mother was beyond painful for Katherine Hepburn. As she grieved, Kate was reminded of the Hepburn family motto to listen to the song of life and seize the day. Her mother's passing propelled Kate to take a chance and accept producer Sam Spiegel's rather disorganized offer to star in The African Queen. Quote, mother's death, which was sudden, put things in perspective for me. She was a vital woman with a lot in life that she'd still wanted to do. And while The African Queen seemed like a hopeless mess, I wanted to see Africa and I wanted to work with Bogey and John Huston, unquote. So Catherine Hepburn found herself bound for Africa, adventure, and yet another role that would stretch herself as an actress. C.S. Forrester's novel, The African Queen, was first published in 1935. Hollywood took notice, and RKO became one of the first studios to express interest in Forrester's book. Thinking at appropriate film material for the husband-wife team of Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester, but RKO soon lost interest in the African Queen. The story, after all, centered on what many at the time considered to be a middle-aged romance. Now, I must point out that in the book, Rose Sayre is actually only 33. Still, it wasn't exactly blockbuster material in the increasingly youth-oriented culture of Hollywood. As one RKO script editor wrote of why the African Queen should never be made into a film, quote, It's dated, incredible, quite outside the accepted dramatic screen material. Its two characters are neither appealing nor sympathetic enough to sustain interest for an entire picture. Both are physically unattractive, and their love scenes and romance are distasteful and not a little disgusting. It's no bargain at any price. No amount of rewriting can possibly salvage this dated yarn. Unquote. Well, that's pretty harsh. By 1946, it was Warner Brothers who owned the screen rights to the African Queen, believing David Niven and Betty Davis could turn this dated yarn into a blockbuster. But only a year later... Warner Brothers changed its mind and tried to sell the property without success. Reportedly, a bigwig at another studio turned down a sale offer from Warner's by saying that, quote, not even if Betty went with this, unquote, would his studio be interested in buying the African Queen? So not even the inclusion of Betty Davis, one of the biggest stars of the era, could make purchasing the African Queen's screen rights worth it. That really says something about how truly terrible everyone thought The African Queen was. It wasn't until 1950, a full 15 years after the book's publication, that two Hollywood visionaries, producer Sam Spiegel and director John Huston, saw The African Queen's great film potential. Savvy to the crumbling studio system and increasing number of theatergoers opting to stay home for television, Spiegel and Houston recognized the African Queen as an intriguing adventure story set in an exotic locale, something audiences couldn't get on television and would go to theaters to see. So Spiegel and Houston, under their young production company, Horizon Pictures, bought the African Queen screen rights and decided to make the film themselves. It was Sam Spiegel who sent Kate the book and courted her to play Rose Sayer. From the beginning, Spiegel and Houston's proposed production seemed more than a little disorganized to Kate. The unique financial arrangements Spiegel set up just to buy the film rights and get the production financed were enough to make Kate wonder if she'd ever get paid for starring in the film. But here was her chance to see Africa. And as Kate knew, Rose Sayre was a dream part for a middle-aged actress intent on not being sidelined. Quote, well, I read it, and it really made me sit up and take notice. A great part for me. But who's going to play Charlie Allnutt? Unquote. Spiegel and Kate both agreed that Humphrey Bogart was the ideal choice for Charlie Allnutt. Using the prospect of working with Kate as bait, director John Huston set out to convince Bogie to accept the role. It was an easy sale for Huston to make to his old pal Bogart, who he'd already directed in such classics as The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and Key Largo. Houston's laid-back pitch to Bogey for the African Queen was indicative of the great humor and ease that infused their friendship. Quote, "'Want to do something?' Houston asked Bogart. "'Yeah,' Bogart responded. "'Good,' Well, the hero is a lowlife, and you're the biggest lowlife in town, and therefore most suitable for the part. Unquote. Well, with flattery like that, how could Bogie say no? Now that he had two megastars in the leading roles, Houston, as director and screenwriter, had to get his act together and finish the African Queen script. He co-wrote the majority of the script with James Agee at Santa Barbara's San Ysidro Ranch before eventually finishing it with Peter Vertel on location. Playing so fast and loose with the script remained a sticking point for Kate, who'd lament that Houston never showed her a final script until her arrival in Africa. The adventure of filming on location was a huge reason why Catherine Hepburn agreed to make the African Queen. But Humphrey Bogart's feelings on location shooting were the polar opposite. Bogey had worked hard for his comfortable personal and professional life in California, and he was reluctant to leave it all behind to film a movie in the jungle on another continent. He couldn't bear to be away from his lovely wife Lauren Bacall, Betty to her friends, and their young son Steve for the duration of filming. The separation issue was partly solved by Bogey's insistence that Betty come with him to Africa. As Bogart told a New York columnist, quote, I hate like the devil to take Betty away from our son for such a long time. The kid's only two, and we're going to be away for at least six months. But I can't see it any other way. My other marriages broke up on account of separations. Betty and I, we've been married six years, and I want to go on. So wherever I go, she goes. Unquote. I suppose that some may view Bogart's insistence that Bacall go wherever he goes as paternalistic. Personally, I think it's incredibly sweet that he cared enough about his wife and the success of their marriage to insist on no separations. Bogie learned a lot from his previous two marriages, and he wasn't going to make the same mistakes with Betty. He loved her too much to risk the potentially detrimental consequences of an extended separation. And besides, Bacall was on the exact same page as her husband on the matter. It didn't make the separation from her two-year-old son any easier, but she knew that going with Bogie was for the ultimate good of their family. As Bacall shared in her autobiography, quote, I have a pain in my solar plexus when I remember how it felt to leave Steve behind. You suddenly say to yourself, Why the hell am I going? What am I doing? Then, of course, you know what you're doing. You're going with your husband, who believes in no separations in marriage, and who's working. Your life with him can't stop for your son. And admit it, you want to see those unseen places. So, the brain whirs, the heart tugs, the gut aches. I must have turned around a hundred times to look at Steve and wave and throw kisses and get teary-eyed. Unquote. Is it any wonder that Lauren McCall and Humphrey Bogart enjoyed one of the most successful marriages in Hollywood? They were so dedicated to one another, and as Catherine Hepburn would soon observe of the Bogarts as she got to know them on location in Africa, quote, Betty and Bogey seem to have the most enormous opinion of each other's charms. Unquote. I love the Bogarts. The first stop for Kate on her way to Africa was London, where she met up with the Bogarts for a press conference. Now, you'd think that having three of Hollywood's biggest stars in the same room would divide the attention of the reporters present. But according to Lauren Bacall, there was no competition. All eyes and ears were on 44-year-old Kate. Quote, there was a press conference at Claridge's for which I got myself all done up in a Balenciaga suit. And Catherine Hepburn stole the show in her pants. Unquote. A reporter present confirmed Bacall's retelling of the conference, writing that, quote, Drawing a big crowd of note-takers away from the Bogarts, Kate chattered steadily for about two hours, most of it leg pulling, that was then solemnly printed the next day. Unquote. So not even the presence of the gorgeous Lauren Bacall or the alluring insouciance of Humphrey Bogart could detract from the star power of Katharine Hepburn. That's pretty impressive. After London, Kate and the Bogarts next stopped in Rome. Then it was finally off to Africa. Though Forster's novel takes place in Kenya, director John Huston decided to film the African Queen in the Congo and Uganda. According to Huston, the movie required close jungle and a narrow river, which would allow for filming at close range. After weeks of careful location scouting, Huston found both of these conditions met by the Ruiki River, a small, winding tributary of the Congo River. So small, in fact, that at the time, the Ruiki was unmarked on most maps of the region. Above the river were trees and heavy vines, which Houston knew would create the look he was going for in the movie. Even better, as far as Houston was concerned, the water of the Ruiki was black, caused by tannic acid from the surrounding vegetation, which he knew would look awesome on film. In addition to the Ruiki River, Houston chose a village just outside of Buitapa, and lastly, Murchison Falls to round out the location filming. One assistant director on the film swore that Houston's selections for the African Queen locations were also perhaps a little selfish, more than a little influenced by the fact that Houston planned to go hunting in the mornings and evenings and couldn't get a license to do so in Kenya. Quote, John wanted to shoot an elephant, that was what the whole picture was about. Unquote. True motivations aside, there's no denying that Houston's location picks translated beautifully on film, as anyone who's seen the African Queen can attest. Before his stars and the majority of the crew arrived, Houston set up camp along the Ruiki River. The camp, which consisted of bungalows for the stars, dormitories for the crew. Showers, a dining room, a bar, and even a storage pit to keep exposed film cool was constructed in eight days by 85 Congolese workers. Everything was built from bamboo, raffia, and palm leaves without a single nail. 29 women carried water to the camp each day from a spring about a mile away. The water was then boiled, filtered, and treated with halazone tablets before consumption or use, to prevent disease and sickness. After Kate, Bogie, and Bacall flew into Stanleyville, they began their intense and lengthy journey to the camp at Ruiki. As Lauren Bacall put it, quote, Houston chose the most inaccessible spot in Africa as a location, and the villages we passed along the way became more and more primitive as we moved deeper into the Congo, unquote. Jungle living, he'd discovered on the way to camp, was definitely not Humphrey Bogart's cup of tea. Bogie found that none of the clothes he brought were appropriate for the heat and humidity of the Congo. In fact, Bogey and McCall had to send most of their clothing back to London and order tin trunks to keep the constant dampness of the region from ruining what items they decided to keep with them. Catherine Hepburn, on the other hand, came wardrobe prepared. And lucky for Bogey, the two of them were just about the same size. As Kate remembered, quote, My own wardrobe was much more suitable to the jungle than it has been anywhere else. I may look odd walking across Clareridge's lobby, but I'm the height of chic in the jungle. To show the extremes of lack of appropriate clothing, Bogey was wearing my safari pants and coat, a man suit which I had from Abercrombie's. A perfect fit for Bogey, we just split the pants a bit down the rear seam. Unquote. That's awesome. When they finally arrived at the camp, Kate was ecstatic about her bungalow, which she quickly deemed the best. The only thing Kate was less than happy about with her setup was the adjoining outhouse she was to share with the Bogarts. As Kate comically described the situation, quote, I saw the Siamese to an outhouse for the Bogies and me and my heart sank. For though I expected to be very intimate with them, I did feel that sitting there together in the early morning would be going a bit further than the ordinary demands of co-starring in a motion picture. Unquote. Kate solved the problem of privacy by uh, repurposing the lower half of an aluminum double boiler. Kate called her ingeniousness with the pot, quote, a very excellent solution to the problem. It may disgust you that I've brought it up at all, but who knows? Someday, you may find this information very useful. Unquote. I'm pretty sure only Katherine Hepburn can get away with discussing such subjects. The day filming was set to begin on the Ruiki River, it rained, pushing everything back a day. But it rained the next day as well, pushing everything back yet another day. It was a telling start to the shooting schedule, which remained in constant mercy to the elements. When weather finally allowed filming to commence, the African Queen herself was used to pull four rafts with all the necessary filming equipment down the Ruiki River. The first raft consisted of a mock-up of the African Queen, in effect, a sound stage of the boat with movable parts. This setup allowed Houston and the crew to easily film Kate and Bogey from any angle, while maintaining the illusion that they were on board the actual boat. The second raft was for camera equipment, lighting, and props, while the third raft was for the generator. The fourth raft was meant to be a dressing room for Kate, but good sport that she was, Hepburn ultimately agreed with Houston that this fourth raft was unnecessary baggage and weight for the African queen to pull, so they dropped it. The one luxury Kate did maintain from her dressing room raft was a full-length mirror, which she carried to each location. By the end of filming in Africa, that full-length mirror had broken so many times, it was handheld, just a fraction of its original size. John Houston referred to the African Queen and this train of rafts as the strangest flotilla the African waterways had ever seen, while Lauren Bacall called the site of this strange flotilla traveling downriver an absolute riot. But it was an effective setup that got the job of filming on the Ruiki done. Just a few days into filming, John Houston sat Catherine Hepburn down for a serious talk. Her performance, he said, was hurting the film. Wow, those are some pretty strong words. The problem, Houston felt, was that Kate was playing Rosie too solemnly, bringing the whole picture down in the process. But he had a suggestion for her. Look to former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt for inspiration. Eleanor, Houston explained, always seemed to be smiling. No matter how grave the situation... Eleanor smiled and got through it, inspiring all those around her. Houston believed that such a character trait could be the key to Kate's interpretation of Rose Sayre and simultaneously lived the film. Think it over. Perhaps it might be useful, he told her. Hepburn was receptive to the advice, and after Houston left her alone to contemplate, Kate remembered that, quote, I sat there and thought, That's the best damn piece of direction I've ever heard. He's just told me exactly how to play the part. I was his from there on in. Kate implemented Houston's Eleanor Roosevelt suggestion and brought the smile of a survivor to her Rosie every time the character experienced a setback, which is often in the film. And John Houston was right. Such a seemingly small piece of business. Did lift the film and makes Rosie incredibly lovable. In Houston's words, quote, from that moment on, Kate was perfect, unquote. It's a good thing that Houston could count on Kate for a perfect performance, for the director had plenty of other things to worry about during filming on the Ruiki River. Such is the time the African Queen sank. Yep, that actually happened. Apparently, the guy in charge of keeping an eye on the boat wasn't very good at his job. According to Lauren Bacall, the man had been hired to watch the African Queen, and he did. He watched it sink. The cast, crew, and Congolese workers all banded together and lassoed the boiler of the African Queen with a rope, which they then pulled to lift the boat up from the bottom of the river, Humphrey Bogart remembered everyone joining in with the Congolese workers who chanted hula-ha with each pull. According to Bogie, quote, I don't know how many hula-has it took to raise the damn thing, but it took two days to get it up and another day to get it back in order. Unquote. Well, unfortunately, according to Betty Bacall, the day the African queen sank didn't get any better after the boat was retrieved. Kate and Bacall returned to camp that evening only to find that soldier ants had invaded their bungalows. As Bacall put it, a thick carpet of these ferocious ants covered the floors, attracted by the decaying palm leaves, bamboo, and raffia that their bungalows were constructed of. At one point during the attack, Kate found herself covered with soldier ants from head to toe. She was bitten everywhere but her face, neck, and hands. Somehow, Hepburn found the bright side of the situation, expressing how fortunate it was that her ant bites wouldn't be visible on camera, thanks to the frequently high necklines and long sleeves of her costuming. Humphrey Bogart, on the other hand, pretty sick and tired of jungle living by this time, found Kate's eternal optimism irritating. Quote, Damn Hepburn, damn her, she's so cheerful. She's got ants in her pants and mildew in her shoes, and she's still cheerful. I build a solid wall of whiskey between me and the bugs. She doesn't even drink, and she breezes through it all as if it were a weekend in Connecticut. Unquote. Ants in her pants and mildew in her shoes. It's literally impossible to keep Katherine Hepburn down. Luckily, filming at the Ruiki finished not long after the soldier ant invasion, Things were a little less eventful as the African Queen Company moved on to Butiaba to shoot the opening village sequences of the film. But not by much. Probably the worst thing the cast and crew had to cope with at their next location was the occasional appearance of a poisonous black mamba snake. In the toilet. No big deal. The other challenge at Butiaba thankfully didn't involve poisonous snakes, but it did delay filming. Houston had worked out a deal with a local chief to use his people as villagers in the opening scenes. But on the day filming was to begin, no one showed up. Houston soon found out why. At the time, rumors of cannibalism in the region were on the rise, and the chief's people worried that whatever these crazy Hollywood people were up to was a trap. Houston was sympathetic to their worries having experienced his own run-in with a cannibalistic hunter while scouting filming locations. Houston contracted the hunter, not knowing that he literally hunted everything, to provide meat for the small group of the African Queen Company that was traveling with him. A big pot of stew was usually on the menu, incorporating whatever meat the hunter provided them with each day. As Houston remembered, quote, The pot consisted of an indiscriminate sort of stew comprised of monkey, forest pig, deer, and you name it. Eventually, someone did. One afternoon, a group of soldiers marched into camp and arrested our hunter. We weren't told why. They refused to tell us. But finally, the local chief, King Paul, confided to me that the villagers had been disappearing mysteriously. It seems that when the hunter couldn't find game for the pot, he got the meat in the simplest possible way. The hunter was executed a few days later. I was thankful that the quote-unquote long pig was served before the main group of the African Queen Company arrived. Only a few of us were privileged to dine so exclusively. Unquote. Well, that's freaky and gross. Luckily, the African Queen crew soon gained the trust of the chief and his people, and filming at Butiaba was completed in about a week. Then, it was off to Murchison Falls for the final leg of location shooting. Murchison Falls was the most trying of the three filming locations. By this time, the constant battle of man versus jungle was getting to most of the African Queen company. Add to this the increased danger of contracting bilharzia, an infection of the urinary tract by parasitic flatworms entering the body through skin pores after even the smallest exposure to contaminated water, and most of the African queen camp was ready to go home. Even Kate, who hadn't missed a day of filming thus far, found herself on bed rest. It wasn't bilharzia, but something in the water quickly infected just about everyone. As Kate remembered, "quote, people in the company began to get sick, sick to their stomachs. Then I began to get sick. Being a urologist's daughter, I decided to flood myself with water—the great cure. In this case, it didn't seem to work. I lost 20 pounds, and I was thin to begin with. It was weird. The doctor on board was totally confused." unquote the doctor analyzed the water tank and decided the filters were probably to blame. So bottled water was brought in from Nairobi. Everyone was instructed to drink the bottled water exclusively. But things only got worse. Curiously, two people seemed strangely immune to the illness that plagued the rest of the company. As Kate remembered, quote, Now, all this time, neither Bogie nor John had been sick at all. They were fine. Then the doctor decided to test the bottled water, and yes, you're right, the bottled water was polluted. And I, the queen of drinking water, the urologist prize, was the sickest. And those two undisciplined weaklings had so lined their insides with alcohol that no bug could live in their atmosphere. Well, Katie, what do you say to that? There wasn't much I could say. I took to champagne. Well, it really was a very good joke on me, especially as privately I had felt so completely superior to that unhealthy pair. Unquote. So when you can't drink the water, drink the scotch or the champagne. Luckily, a clean water source was found and Kate pulled through. Filming in Africa finished by late July. Due to the danger of contracting Bilharzia from water contact, all shots of Rose and Charlie directly in water had to be filmed back in London at Shepardin Studios and Wharton Hall. Here, Humphrey Bogart was suited up with fake leeches for the scene when Charlie pulls the African Queen through reeds and leech-infested swamp waters. Kate and John Houston both encouraged Bogart to allow real leeches to be used in the scene, but Bogie, not particularly enthusiastic about putting the blood-sucking parasites all over his body, said no way. You try it first, kid, he told Kate. And the conversation stopped there. Also in London, Kate's perennially growling stomach was put to good use. For the scene at the start of the African Queen, when Charlie Allnett's stomach noises keep him from making a classy impression on Rose and Samuel, it was Kate who provided the sound effects. As Hepburn proudly shared, quote, they got Bogart in close up, but I provided the background noises. I was an absolute expert on a growling stomach. If mine got empty enough, it would growl, and I ruined some of my own takes. So they said, Now you're gonna be of some use to us. Unquote. The African Queen was released just after Christmas nineteen fifty one allowing for consideration in the year's Academy Awards. The film garnered Kate her fifth Academy Award nomination for Best Actress and brought Humphrey Bogart his first and only Best Actor win. It was a well-deserved and long-awaited award, but Bogie generously thanked Kate for making it all possible. Quote, No one does it alone. As in tennis, you need a good opponent or partner to bring out the best in you. John and Katie helped me to be where I am now. Unquote. The African Queen was a colossal hit, earning $4.3 million in the US and another 6 million worldwide, making it the fourth highest grossing film of the year. But despite this impressive box office performance, just about no one got paid. It was all thanks to the shady business dealings of producer Sam Spiegel. Spiegel, who stooped so low as to use $43,000 of the film's budget to pay his own back taxes, did his best to avoid sharing the profits of The African Queen with Houston, Bogart, and Hepburn, all of whom signed contracts guaranteeing them generous percentages of the film's earnings. As Spiegel's attorney Albert Haidt put it Don't ask and don't tell. That was the way Sam operated. If you didn't ask, you didn't get your money. Unquote. The complete facts of how Spiegel managed to rip off his partner and stars aren't entirely clear, but a few things are certain. Houston never collected the 50% of the profits due him as Spiegel's business partner and director of the film, while Bogart never received the $600,000 his salary and percentage deal entitled him to. It's possible Kate fared better than Bogear Houston with her paycheck as she has nothing but good things to say about Sam Spiegel in her book, The Making of the African Queen. But then again, Kate was aware of the disorganized nature of the film production from the start, and had realistic expectations about her odds of ever being paid. So, before she agreed to make the African Queen, Kate decided that as long as Spiegel paid her living expenses for the duration of filming, she'd be satisfied. Quote, I didn't mind doing the film for nothing, but I didn't intend to pay for the privilege of doing it. Unquote. Regardless of pay, Kate always referred to her experiences filming The African Queen as one great adventure. In other words, she loved the whole crazy, frustrating, frightening, joyfully enriching, and life-changing experience the African queen further propelled Kate's desire to step out of her comfort zone. In the following years, she continued to stretch herself as an actress, performing George Bernard Shaw's The Millionaire on London's West End, and playing more nuanced and mature women in her films, such as Summertime and The Rainmaker. Kate even tackled Shakespeare yet again, performing The Merchant of Venice, The Taming of the Shrew, and measure for measure on an Australian tour with London's prestigious Old Vic Theatre Company. The 1950s were arguably the most artistically rewarding, and certainly the most varied, years of Catherine Hepburn's career. And now, happy with the direction her career was taking, and rejuvenated by these challenging projects, Kate was anxious to spend more time with Spencer Tracy, whom she saw surprisingly little of during these years of travel and artistic fulfillment. As Kate later said of this time, quote, I suppose I had to prove something to myself. I felt I had reached out as an actress and felt more fulfilled. And so I wanted to reach out to Spence. I knew that he had to help himself, but I also knew that I could help him too. Once I had fortified myself, unquote. As the 1950s drew to a close, the happiest years of Kate's relationship with Spencer, some of the best film roles of her career, and three Best Actress Oscars were still ahead. One of those roles would put her opposite Spence in what proved to be one of the era's most daring films. It was also Spencer Tracy's last. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, vanguardofhollywood.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood for all about Kate, Spence, Sidney Poitier, and 1967's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner.